Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm Mike, and with me this week are Anne-Marie, Rory, and Emmett from my Wall Street's investing team. Today, we're talking about the pitfalls of investing in Chinese stocks, Square's acquisition of Afterpay, and what impact recent fraud allegations may have on the future of SPACs. Hi lads, I assume everyone has been engrossed in the Olympics as much as I have over the past few weeks. Uh, Emmett, if you could add one activity, it doesn't have to be a sport to the Olympics, what would it be? Um, stenography. Stenography, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what it is. No, I do, I know what it is. I, um, the nose flute, electric guitar, I don't know. <laughs> Rory and Anne-Marie, any input? I would I as as I revealed to all my colleagues a few weeks ago I used to be very good at rollerblading and they've brought in this like BMXing and skateboarding but no rollerblading so I can't use my I can't like rediscover my talent anymore and become an Olympic athlete at the age of 34 Damn <laughs> Okay Sad. Moving upsetting. on then All right to to less upsetting news um <laughs> <laughs> in the latest of a series of unfortunate events to affect Chinese tech stocks, on Tuesday, Chinese state media outlet Ec- Economic Information Daily described online gaming as spiritual opium and electronic drugs, claiming teenagers were addicted to gaming and calling for restrictions on the industry. The article specifically called out Tencent, who reacted by putting a time limit for minors on its popular game Honor of Kings. To add to the confusion, the article has since been deleted with the regulatory source claiming it doesn't represent Beijing's official view. This comes just a week after regulators announced that they would be cracking down on for-profit tutoring, sending stocks like New Oriental Education and TAL Education plummeting. Rory, for an investor eyeing up Chinese stocks, is the increased regulatory oversight just too large a hurdle to overcome right now? Well, this isn't like uh, a new thing, for one. I mean, it's there does seem to be a lot happening in a very short space of time. Um, there has been a kind of new wave of crackdowns in various sectors. This kind of one kind of really began, I suppose, at the tail end of last year when the government seemed to take a particular interest in Jack Ma, uh, the founder of Alibaba, and at one point China's richest man. I don't think he quite is anymore. He's certainly the most prolific uh, Chinese billionaire. But back then, the government hit Ch- uh, Ma's company with a record fine, um, something around the region of 2.7 billion US dollars. And then they completely derailed uh, the planned IPO of Ant Financial, which was part of the Alibaba group. The company was kind of forced to become a a financial holding company, which really quite severely limited its ability to to make money. It had much tougher reporting requirements. Um, It had to cut ties with Alipay, which which many saw as its major advantage in the Chinese market. Um, And this, some kind of saw this as either direct payback um, for Jack Ma's criticism of the government or as a kind of shot across the bow to other uh, Chinese billionaires to kind of put them in their place, remind them who really is in charge. And, and actually, subsequently, Jack Ma kind of just disappeared for three months. People actually thought he was dead for some of the 
the kind of crazier conspiracy theorists on, on Twitter thought that he was dead, but he, he is not. He's, he's alive. Um, now, you fast forward two months ago, and just days after uh, Diddy Chung, China's Uber, gets listed on the US exchanges, the Chinese government had the app banned from the major app stores in China just overnight. Um, and this led to a 30% drop instantly in the market cap of Diddy. Um, they lost about $22 billion literally like in the in the flash of a switch. And um, and things haven't really improved for that company. The company's still fighting with the regulators. It's not only was its uh, ride hailing app taken off the app stores, but like 25 other ancillary businesses that they had all gone. And, you know, more recently, the government has issued kind of more tough crackdowns on for-profit education companies in particular. Essentially, they seem to be going down the path that education is in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party and that no other company should be profiting off that. Now, Chinese education stocks had already taken a huge hit this year just on that kind of broader Chinese technology sell-off. Um, but the news a week ago just absolutely wiped them out. Uh, TAL Group, which is one of those companies that's listed on the US exchanges and has been great for shareholders over the last few years, but a huge winner, um, was was at $80 a share back in February. Today it's trading at under six. That's a 92% drawdown. And that was a kind of a, a favorite among kind of novice investors in particular. Um, now, Ray, funnily enough, Ray Dalio, who's the CEO of the BlackRock Group, wrote on LinkedIn, because that's where Ray Dalio hangs out, kind of cool social media for hedge fund managers. Um, he says that these are these moves are being quite really being misinterpreted by Westerners as anti-capitalistic, and that the moves in education in particular are actually an attempt to reduce inequality. And and there is kind of some backing for this. The, the, there's a huge like it's a massive massive industry, private tutoring in China, and it's very very competitive. Um, it's been suggested that like these spiraling costs of education in the country are actually leading to lower birth rates. And after decades of the one China policy. That's starting to have serious consequences for the for the company for the country's future. I don't know particularly if that's going to comfort investors and if the reasoning is going to comfort investors who are down ninety two percent of their investment. But it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out over the coming few months. I mean, you mentioned gaming there. Gaming is also an area that the country has been targeting, which is nothing new really. They actually previously went after ten cent back in two thousand and eighteen, and ten cent did a real okay. We're we're going to diversify out of gaming. Please don't hurt us anymore. Um. So I'm not sure that's anything new. I don't think that's something that investors in games, gaming stocks, stocks should be worried about right this minute. Um, but I do think investors need to remember regulatory ex risk exists pretty much everywhere. Um, but unlike in America, let's say, uh, you know, with the trust-busting Biden administration that we've been promised, um, you know, they, they may wish to limit monopolistic practices of companies like Apple or Facebook. Um, However, they do it in a very transparent legal framework. Uh, the Chinese government isn't restricted by any legal framework. They really do whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, and there's no recourse for businesses in that region. And, and it's happened before. You know, at the start of Xi Jinping's premiership, um, he started a major crackdown on graft and corruption within the Communist Party. And that has serious impact on a couple of companies that we follow. Uh, Win Resorts, for example, saw a massive decline in revenues from its Macau casinos because that was a resort that was frequented by kind of high-ranking party members who were whining and dining people and, you know, showing people around. And uh, Diageo, um, which is a London-based business, they had previously acquired a Chinese Baijiu, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, 
which is a, a Chinese white spirit, which is was very kind of traditional in terms of gift giving. So you, you were going to someone's house, you'd always bring a bottle of this very expensive white spirit. That, com- the, that company that they just acquired, so its revenues declined like 66% uh, following that crackdown. And Tiffany's as well, which is another one of these kind of gift giving companies that was very popular in China. That's saw a big hit as well. So I think, you know, when you're investing in China, I think a lot of investors worry about things like fraud, you know, are these companies fraudulent or they're based in the Cayman Islands. But this is very much a risk as well. There is this kind of sometimes random cracking of the whip um, from the Chinese government that we that the businesses involved just have no recourse of whatsoever. You know, and Apple is another company that we have to watch out for because Apple has made this huge pledge around the world to be the company that is in, you know, is going to protect your privacy. That's not quite the case in China, as a New York Times article a couple of weeks ago proved. They have completely bended over backwards for the Chinese government, and you know that's just the power that this 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 um, this government has, and something investors do need to be wary of. Mm. Anne Marie, you were looking into uh, the regulatory oversight on Alibaba recently as well. Uh, what did you find? Um, yeah, it was just someone asked me kind of um, why we hadn't looked at Alibaba in terms of adding it. Um, to the short list. And there was like a couple of reasons. Number one was that its its market share is actually shrinking in terms of e-commerce and the e-commerce market in China has become much more competitive. And really now the growth is not based in Chinese cities. It's based in um, more rural areas or in smaller towns. And now it's trying to see, oh, what players are going to um, take advantage of that market. But but also on top of that was just the rather difficult regulatory environment that Alibaba has found itself in. It's being investigated for monopolistic practices, um, which like such as restricting vendors from selling merchandise on other platforms and and those type of things. But really, I think the issue that I found with Alibaba is it's so large now at this point. And I think the Chinese government has kind of expressed um, this this idea that, that they're not a huge fan of very large companies, even though they probably would like them to grow so that they could um, – you know, e- economically flourish, the Chinese government seems to be prioritizing the control of tech giants um, more than they are kind of the benefit of these large tech giants because they essentially pose an existential threat to their government. Um, I think, you know, in America, we talk about banks or companies growing too large, that they become too big to fail. I think in China, it's this issue of we don't want a company to grow too big to censor. Um, and so that was kind of really, I wanted to wait to see what was going to happen in terms of the regulatory environment for Alibaba. I could see the company getting broken up into three or four separate entities, and then you're better off kind of waiting to see what the parts end up looking like and see if there's one that you prefer. It's it, it's very interesting to watch from a kind of geopolitical frame of mind, because obviously China wants foreign investment in its businesses. They were very quick to come out after the education story and say, this is only education companies now. Don't, you know, we're not, we're not cracking down on all companies. This is just for the, the for-profit education companies. But by being so heavy-handed at times, they are losing investor confidence. Um, and, and you can see that the entire Chinese, all the Chinese stocks that are listed in, on US exchanges have been hurt by these announcements. And really the only way, you know, I think perhaps the only way that they're going to end up getting investor confidence back is by becoming more transparent. And that is not particularly something that they are want to do. Um, so they're going to have to be kind of, you know, wary now of, of how they they approach these things in the future, I think. Um, and like Anne-Marie said, yeah, there does seem to be a, very much a kind of balance of power issue here going on. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not, and Ray Dalio would argue that that's not the case. And Ray Dalio probably knows a lot more about China than we do, but it definitely looks from an outside perspective that that's what's happening. 
Yeah, I think the big question that investors are going to ask themselves is, are they going to avoid a great business just because it's based in China now? Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly something that you have to factor into your investment thesis. Um, it would definitely, and it's going to prevent as well an awful lot of smaller Chinese companies gaining access to capital because that is the way that they're going to grow and become massive businesses. And you know, a lot, an option, the options of coming over listing on the U.S. exchanges is looking less and less likely for them going forward. There's there's definitely a kind of financial cold war occurring right now between the U.S. and China, and this this whole ADR thing based on the Cayman Islands thing does not look like it's going to be around for much longer. Okay, uh, moving on then, we kicked off this week with the news that payments processor Square acquired uh, the buy now, pay later specialist Afterpay for $29 billion in an all-stock deal. Uh, the deal with C Square integrate Afterpay's uh, buy now, pay later offering into both its seller ecosystem and its cash app product, while also giving the company access to Afterpay's clients like Amazon and Target. With millions of merchants and over 70 million Cash App users, it's easy to see the synergies of this move. Uh, Anne-Marie, do you like the deal or do you think Square should have paid in four installments of $7.25 billion instead? Um, I like the deal. I think it's going to benefit um, both kind of the Cash App and then maybe more importantly, the Square seller ecosystem. And that's going to be because it's going to diversify their customer base in a, in a number of meaningful ways. What's actually interesting is that um, this is almost the opposite of what Apple is trying to do. So Apple is trying to bolster um, usage of Apple Pay by leveraging their merchants. So Apple has Apple Pay has access to something like 80% of merchants in the United States, but their in-store usage is actually quite low. So they're going to say, we're going to introduce Apple Pay later. And this will be another option that will encourage people to use Apple Pay in these thousands of stores and websites that we have access to. This is the opposite of that. This is Cash App saying, we have millions of users. And yet over the last year, our ability to grow merchant partnerships has become almost completely stagnant. So now they're saying, what's wrong with our users that we can't attract merchants? using using our user base. And so now they're going to attempt to diversify them in kind of a regional sense and kind of an age sense and maybe most importantly in an income sense, I think is going to be one of the biggest factors. So the Cash App has seen kind of significant growth over the last year, but it is most commonly used in the United States and the United Kingdom. And this is because you actually couldn't use the Cash App outside of these countries until 2020. And that has meant that Square and the Cash App have kind of a bit of catching up to do when it comes to international um, access. So Afterpay has 16 million customers and 3.4 million of these are in the Australia and the New Zealand region. And they have control of roughly 14% of the buy now, pay later market in Australia, which is actually significant. I know 14% doesn't sound like that much, but this uh, market is significantly segmented. So to control that amount, even in a small region is quite good. Um, they also have a growing footprint in the Asia Pacific region. And so I think this represents a nice diversification opportunity for both the Cash App and their merchant program. They also have a really, really young demographic. The vast majority of Afterpay's users are millennials and Gen Z. And I think um, that also represents a great opportunity for Cash App to continue to kind of sign on people who are really young. And hopefully they will continue to use the product for decades to come. That's a huge growth potential for them. Um, unfortunately, kind of with this same regional argument, Afterpay doesn't have that great of a presence in the United States or in Europe. Those markets are really dominated by Klarna in Europe and then Affirm and PayPal in the United States. Um, but I think the cash app presence in the United States then combined with Afterpay will actually help bring Afterpay into the United States. So I still think that's quite significant. Um, but probably the most significant factor is going to be the fact that Afterpay and kind of all of these buy now, pay later um, programs 
encourage people to spend more money, and number two, tend to attract people who make more money. So only 13% of Cash App users right now have an annual income above $100,000, but um, 31% of Buy Now Pay Later users earn more than $100,000. If Afterpay has access to affluent users, it represents a significant opportunity for Square to attract higher-end merchants so they can make more money and grow out that merchant base. Um, I think this is going to be really important for them in the coming years as their merchant Uh, growth has particularly slowed over the last year, even as the cash app usage has exploded. Um, That being said, the 31% figure that has been kind of thrown around by a lot of analysts, that's a general figure for buy now, pay later programs. And I would actually say that that Afterpay is kind of on the lower end of that. Afterpay is pretty much specialized in these six-week paid installment programs that have no interest. The only way that they make money is off of late fees. And most typically, these are being used for purchases under $500. In my view, someone making more than $100,000 probably isn't going to be using a payment plan, you know, to buy $150 of clothes. They're far more likely to be using an interest payment program through Klarna or through a firm, which is more specialized in, you know, lending you money up to $15,000 because you need to buy all new furniture for your apartment or something like that. That being said, I could definitely see as, as, as this deal goes forward that Afterpay begins to build out that infrastructure to bring in um, these kind of more high-end users, these bigger spenders, and that will make square even more attractive to you know a store like restoration hardware where people are coming in and they have really big basket sizes um and i think kind of the most important factor like all buy now pay later programs it helps consumers spend more it's estimated that in general these programs help people spend between 20 and 30 percent more and in australia where afterpay has been operating the longest afterpay is an australian company um people in the program spend twice as much in store and online than people in the uk and the us so if these results can be replicated around the world Anyway, that anywhere that the cash app or afterpay has consumers and has merchants, I think that this is a really persuasive argument for Square to be able to approach more merchants, more high-end merchants, and argue, you should be adding us into your infrastructure, you should be using our platform, because we have access to millions of users who are prepared to spend more money through this program. Good stuff. Moving on then, uh, last week saw a grand jury indict electric truck startup Nikola's founder Trevor Milton on three counts of fraud. Uh, Nikola went public via SPAC in June of last year and reached a valuation of $31 billion, surpassing Ford for a brief moment in time in spite of no revenue. The charges against Milton accused him of lying about, and I quote, nearly all aspects of the business in order to bolster sales of the stock. Uh, we all know about the famous uh, truck rolling down the hill video. Uh, that was one of uh, Nicola's famous advertisements. But uh, what's interesting about this case is that the prosecution is claiming Milton specifically targeted retail investors, which he likely wouldn't have had access to had Nicola gone public through a traditional IPO or direct listing. Emmett, as someone who was invested in SPACs before it was cool, what do you think of the impact all this will be going forward? Mm. Well, before I answer, Mike, I think I should give a quick reminder to our listeners about what is a SPAC or a special purpose acquisition company. And I'd say everyone at this stage knows that a SPAC is a blank check shell corporation, which is designed to take uh, companies public without going through all the traditional IPO process. So instead, they go public as shell companies and then later acquire and merge target companies to bring them public on the stock market. So in other words, if you're the CEO of a private company, 
and a SPAC person approaches you to talk about a deal, you put on your best shirt, you get the best breakfast stuff delivered to the boardroom because in a very short time, your company might be sitting on a mountain of cash on the balance sheet and you and your team have sidestepped an IPO process that is complex, time-consuming and expensive. And until this year got into full swing, I would have described 2020 as the year of the SPAC. But oh boy, 2021 has already eclipsed it. So according to everyone's favorite website, SPACanalytics.com, so far there's been 56% more SPACs in IPO in 2021 than there were in 2020. Um, And specifically, SPAC IPOs this year, 2021, uh, in early August, the count is at 389 versus a total of 248 for the entire year of 2020. Uh, Before we get on to Milton and Nicola, can I tell you the names of the top 10 performing SPACs since launch? Have I time? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Okay, so here we go. And you'd be surprised, very few of them you'll know. So Betterware is the top performing SPAC, ticker BWMX, and it has returned just nearly 700% since it went live on the stock market. In second place, Iridium, then Primaris is number four. And then the first name that I think most listeners will be familiar with in fifth place is uh, DraftKings. Um, followed by MP Materials, Simply Good Foods, Open Lending, Virgin Galactic, which I think most of our listeners know, um, Repay and Purple Innovation. So all of those names that I've just listed off have returned 240% or more. So really, the SPACs bring, bring an awful lot of businesses that we've never heard of uh, quietly onto the stock market because they don't go through the typical IPO process. Anyway, as you said, some have criticized SPACs as a shortcut to traditional IPOs, and they do bypass uh, a lot of strict regulatory requirements. And a lot of electric vehicle startups have gone public via SPAC, and most of them are not even selling something yet, um, which, as you said, we covered in a previous podcast, specifically Nicola. So as it happens, Nicola is one of, from my count, three electric vehicle startups being investigated by federal agencies about potentially misleading investors. Lordstown Motors has confirmed that the SEC and Justice Department are investigating its business uh, and the SPAC deal specifically that brought the company public last year. And then uh, Canoe has also, or Canoe, is it Canoe, has confirmed inquiries from the SEC. So our protagonist today, however, is Trevor Milton, who literally became an overnight billionaire when he took his company public through a SPAC deal last summer in something like June of 2020. And on Thursday of last week, as you absolutely said in the intro, Mike, he pleaded not guilty in a Manhattan courtroom to charges that he allegedly defrauded investors by lying about, quote, nearly every aspect of the business. So clearly, US officials believe Milton abused the SPAC process by using social media to continually broadcast lies and misleading information about Nicola, directly to retail investors and went on to say that Milton was obsessed with retail investors and their role in keeping Nikola's stock price up, uh, including tracking the amount of users Robin Hood had who held Nikola's shares. So really, this was kind of, this guy was really tweeting like crazy. And this is a big no-no. Us small folks want the truth. 
the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. I mean, we are relying on truthfulness. Um, that is what the system is there. And it is the, the it, we, uh, Anne-Marie, Rory, you, Mike, and I, we analyze uh, data that is brought to us uh, supposedly as fact. Um, but when you're free to tweet whatever you wish, uh, there's blurred boundaries between factual data and, and made up stuff. So this is what Gerber Grewell, the Security and Exchange Commission Enforcement Director, told reporters last week. Um, uh, Grewell said, this case is about the obligation of corporate officers like Milton to provide complete truthful and accurate information at all times when discussing their company's affairs and then went on to say there's no end around or exception to this obligation it applies to all public companies even those that have only recently entered the public markets including through SPAC transactions so we all remember we had a good lull here in stock club about nicola rolling down the mountain as you said uh, michael and we we had uh a good conversation about it was basically a kind of a port cabin on a skateboard and we called it first i think our bullshit detectors are world class i think it should be mandatory that if you work in the sec or the cia or special ops you should listen to special to stock club because I don't know we, if you don't need the cia listening to you now to be <laughs> but <laughs> anyway in announcing the indictment officials warned retail investors against being persuaded by a friend or fast-talking salesman about investing in a company. They also made it clear that SPACs are in their crosshairs. And then just to elaborate a little further, US attorney Audrey Strauss said, in carrying out this fraudulent scheme, Milton exploited features of the SPAC structure that are different from a traditional IPO. Uh, but in fairness, Milton's defense attorney, Brad Bondi, said in response via email that Milton was wrongfully accused following a faulty and incompetent investigation and that justice won't be served until he's exonerated. So it's all very exciting, really. But what I do think is that SPACs are, as in the, in the words directly from the SC, are in the crosshairs. And that means that, you know, the, the, there will, I, I'm, I'm quite certain, be an increased level of scrutiny for men investors, but perhaps a new layer of regulation for businesses that that um, end up floated as a result of merging with a SPAC. I think this is where an example of where, you know, sometimes removing friction isn't the best outcome, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. you know, I think we've talked about it with Robin Hood as well. Sometimes getting rid of all the friction is a bad thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. a bit of friction is a good thing. Um, and yeah. if it makes people sec you know, think twice about making an investment in what may be a very hyped up industry or maybe a very unproven business model, uh, you know, obviously not all SPACs are bad, not saying that at all, mm -hmm. but it does yeah. seem to attract a high level of um, total charlatans. <laughs> yeah, couldn't agree more. And I've given SPACs a, a huge amount of thought for the last couple of years. And um, to kind of say all SPACs are bad, I don't know if it's an Irish idiom, but like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we don't want to do that. We mm. we do know there's quality businesses in there, like SoFi, for example, wonderful business that I, I believe that went via uh, one of Social Capital's uh, SPACs. And, and so there's quality businesses there, but then there is a shopping list of businesses that really, it's opaque at best to understand where they've come from, what they've done 
and what they're doing and they have sidestep a process that was evolved over um, very many decades. There's a lot of players involved in an IPO and you could be cynical and run to a bottom line to say that it's, you know, it's everyone's just there to, to line their own purse. But uh, while that might be an outcome, everyone plays an important role in an IPO process. Um, and those a lot of those roles have been removed with, with a SPAC. So it brings good and it brings bad. And you're right, Rory, I think a certain amount of friction is necessary in an awful lot of processes to get the proper end result. Mm. Rory, didn't you have a great stat there? Um, Google were the fastest company to reach $10 billion in revenue oh, uh, yeah. in eight years, and five electric vehicle SPACs said they would beat that in 2020. They were being insanely ambitious. And that was part yeah. of the SPAC process that you w- they were allowed yeah. to project yeah. future revenues. Yeah. Um, which IPO and companies are not I, allowed and to. And that's kind of the major distinction is that they were allowed to uh broadcast their projections and Shamat was allowed to go on CNBC for an hour basically mm. with the sale. <laughs> That's it, yeah. I just want to point out as well that Nikola is still today a four billion dollar company and was up until very recently, way after the rolling down the hill story, um like a fifteen, twelve billion dollar company. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's up today. As we speak. So, uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah, so here, buy, sell, or hold to, to Anne Marie and Rory. Buy, sell, or hold Nicola today in this trough of disillusionment. Uh, where are you at? Is there something more than sell? <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. Something well, more I'm sell I can do well. than sell? I don't short businesses, but I mean. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We had that chat. I agree totally. I remember we 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 had a. I think the last company I outwardly said or I intended ever to short was um, WeWork on yeah. uh, on their first on their S one at the time. They took it, it away from us. Yes, they took it away. If we were yeah. around in spec times, we would have seen something. I'd say. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, Anne Marie, right. buy seller hold Nicola. Would you take a punt? No, I would no. <laughs> She's so upset with the questions. Like, no, no, why no. would you do that to me live yeah. on air? That is such an unfair question. Yeah, you'd have to own it to sell it. Like, I, no. <laughs> like, no. I do actually wonder though if the if during the investigation them talking about him incessantly tweeting might um, cause Elon to have a second thought. I no way. Elon's ever had a second thought. <laughs> Elon doesn't. doesn't Elon do doesn't get thoughts. worried about things like that. Right, uh, moving on then. We nearly uh, made it through a show without using his name. So that's pretty good. <laughs> Teflon Elon. <laughs> right, moving on then. Uh, as always, there's lots going on in my Wall Street at the minute with August stock of the month having just been published on Monday. This exciting company is looking to become a household name in one of the fastest growing regions in the world. I'd usually put Rory on the spot here to give us a teaser, but instead, Amory, do you just want to tell us what it is? On- <laughs> <laughs> I actually can't remember what it is. So <laughs> this is new tactics after giving away your stock of the month last week. Uh, as always, you can follow the link in the notes for the podcast to start your free trial with my Wall Street. Uh, moving on then to Jargon Busters. This one comes from Colum. How are you doing, Colum? Uh, he asks, "How much stock-based compensation is too much? Is there a fine line between aligning values with shareholders and having a ne- negative impact on the business as a whole?" Uh, Emmett, what do you think? Um, there's no absolute answer to this. Startups will often give team members stock as part of their compensation to preserve cash and to embed an ownership culture. And as a lover of owning shares and equity, I'm a big believer in it. But it is flawed by the fact that timing 
trumps seniority and experience like for example would you prefer to have been uh, like the airbnb office cleaning person paid with equity in december 2008 or the new global director of something or other in 2021 in all likelihood the cleaner has you know more expensive alloys on their bugatti so like really getting in early is something that really is purely down to luck as opposed to skill and, and what you're bringing. But anyway, Index Ventures, a very kind of prestigious venture capital firm, I think based in Switzerland, published a handbook aimed at helping entrepreneurs figure out option grants at the seed level anyway. And at the company's early stages, they they, they say you can give senior en- engineer as much as 1% of the company uh, they advise. And then they say like experienced business development employees typically given like 0.35% of, a, uh, of the business. And an engineer coming in at mid-level can expect about 0.45% uh, of the equity versus 0.15% as a junior engineer and it continues so really uh, there is a handbook for this kind of stuff but the basic bottom line is you want to distribute just enough equity so that key talent is retained um, uh, to uh, you know for as long as possible uh, that that is the point and I love an ownership culture so what is when is it too much well Colm's question is rooted in well at what point do we let's say, dislike dilution. Um, And some of the faster growing businesses uh, in the world that are floated now, you'll often see circa 2 to 4% dilution per year for stock-based compensation, even though they're now floated. So um, I, I, I mean, I don't want to trivialize, you know, the question or the answer, but I've never really concern myself with it because a board of a business is there to ensure that governance you know is is wrapped around the business and that there isn't unnecessarily unnecessary dilution going on in that business i think it's a bit of a practical matter as well isn't it you know when yeah. a company starting out they are stock rich and cash poor and so yeah. like it's how you get a business off the ground isn't it yeah i think you yeah. do see certain circumstances where it has just gone completely off the wall i remember when jack dorsey took over the second time um from twitter i think their sbc was like 25 percent of revenue like something totally mad like that and his his like number one goal of the company when he came back was to get that back down get that back into a reasonable level so i think it's you know it's something that you can look at with companies across diff- across the same industry, obviously it's probably going to be higher in kind of high growth tech companies than it is going to be in an old utility business. Um, but, and also something that you can judge with the company over time. You know, if you can look back through previous things and see, hold on, is this getting a bit out of hand or are they trying to bring it down is more of a kind of way of looking at it than just picking on a particular percentage mm-hmm. number that we have to look at. Very good. Um so for this week's elevator pitch, I'm going to come to Rory and Amory. Uh, we've seen a big wave of acquisitions recently within the shortlist of companies in the My Wall Street app. Uh, which do you think has been the best bit of business in your opinion? Uh, Amory, I'll start with you. And you're obviously not allowed to say square and after pay. <laughs> um, I think mine is Depop and Etsy, mainly just because I'm I'm quite interested to see where it goes. I, I I'm like very excited by the secondhand selling market. I think it's really, really interesting. But like I haven't yet kind of found the company that I'm like, oh, that's the clear winner. Like they've kind of cracked the system. They've kind of figured it out. Like there's been no player that like is publicly listed or that like I interact with that I'm like, oh, they're nailing this. Here we go. 
But I do think Depop does a much better job at keeping the sellers and the buyers happy. And I think that's a huge sticking point for this type of business. Because you have to remember that with secondhand selling, the issue is the supply. It's every it's fragmented. It's owned by individual people all across the world. It's hard to get. It's hard to get them to ship it. It's hard to ensure quality. And I think Depop has done a much better job at helping people kind of curate shop fronts rather than just being individuals. They encourage people to leave reviews. They help people kind of become known as good sellers, as quality sellers sellers and that keeps shoppers happy. Um, That being said, I think when that combines with Etsy's strong customer service um, kind of background, they're also very good at going to their merchants and being like, oh, here's here's a recommendation of something you could sell. Here's a way that you could promote this item. Here's maybe something you should look into. I think that will combine really well with Depop. And I'll be really interested to see kind of where this goes. I think if someone is going to figure out how to do secondhand selling at scale, I think Etsy could be the one to do it. And also, Gen Z love secondhand selling. They love Depop. And I think it's a great opportunity to bring more Gen Z shoppers to Etsy. Very good. Rory, match that. Something left down with the kids, I assume. Yeah, sadly, that's down to kids. This one's um, this one's from a little while back, but I I still think it counts in a kind of recent acquisition. The acquisition of Segment by Twilio, I think, is probably one of the most interesting acquisitions we've seen in the last couple of years. Um, people probably know what Twilio do, but Segment is a market leader in what's called customer data. Is in a customer data platform, which essentially helps businesses kind of collect all the data they have about their customers, kind of clean it up, put it in one space and gives them a real like proper insight into their into who their customers are. And I think what I really loved about that acquisition was because it seemed to kind of complete the circle for Twilio. Twilio was always one of these businesses that had really gone out there and kind of mastered the art of communicating with your customers. But what Segment brought to that was this whole when do you when are you supposed to communicate with your customers? How are you supposed to uh, communicate with your customers? How are you supposed to personalize those communications to start owning that customer relationship again and not just be purchasing customers from places like Facebook or places like Amazon? Um, and you know, not only that, but I think, first of all, I think Jeff Lawson is probably one of the brightest guys in business today. He's got a great eye for for um, for companies and, and, and a great eye for what, what businesses need. Uh, and I think that the cultures of those two businesses aligned really well, and that they they did it in all in an all stock deal. The CEO of Segment stayed on um, to help grow that business within Twilio, and I think the two of them are going to you know form a big powerhouse in the world of communication. Very good, thank you very much, lads. Right, that's it from this week's Stock Club. If there's anything you want to, want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, make sure to get in touch on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too. And if you're enjoying it, please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. <laughs>
And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 